This is Metal Mike, and in this episode of the 80s Glam Metal Cast, we talk to the bass man from Saigon Kick and Cold Sweat, Chris McLernan. We talk some classic stories from the past and what he has going on today. You should check it out. Welcome to the 80s Glam Metal Cast. How you doing tonight, Chris? I'm doing fantastic, Mike. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great, man. So you got to be pumped up. Monsters of Rock Cruise, Cold Sweat Reunion. Are you psyched or what? I am. I am. It's going to be interesting getting in a room with these guys after 30 years and seeing what comes out of the amplifiers. Yeah, man. It, it is going to be crazy. Can you believe it was 30 years ago that uh, Breakout was released? No. No. None of us can believe that because, you know, I mean, it was the first record for four out of the five of us. So it was a big deal. Um, and then, you know, we did the tour and all that. And all of a sudden we were unceremoniously dropped. And uh, it just, I mean, a lot of that stuff just feels like yesterday. What are some of your best memories of that era? Um, one was literally getting the record done, because there were some obstacles before that, trying to get it done. So actually getting it done and getting it stores was fantastic. Hitting the road with Sabotage was our first leg of the tour. And then uh, touring with Dio later, opening for him. And then playing um, uh, Super Rock Festival in Mannheim, Germany. And um, just, you know making your first video, meeting all your heroes. its It was crazy. It was just at everything you could want in that first album cycle we seemed to get. Wow, so I think I knew about Dio. I didn't know about Sabotage, and I, I love Sabotage. But did you like those guys uh, as well? Or Oh, yeah, they were, they were fantastic. And uh, they're always just so gracious to us, and they killed it every night. And uh, I was a Sabotage fan as well. So... Um, I got up to I got up to play. Uh, well, I used to sing backups with um, John on like Strange Wings and some other stuff. Um, Hall of the Mountain King. Just I would just jump up and sing. They'd let me do that. And then one night in Austin, um, I got up and did Power of the Night, which was really fun. <laughs> oh man, that that is awesome. So uh, I think I told you. I want to say maybe last week it was. I talked with Mark Ferrari. So we did. We talked a right. lot of cold sweat. How did you meet cool. Mark? How did you meet him? Uh, I'm the first time I met Mark is I met him in performance guitar well before, uh, I think he was still in Keel. Um, and I had just, you know, as a kid who just moved to LA. So, um, he was there and I just struck up a conversation with him just cause that's who I am. And that's when we met. And then later we met the second time when I brought Anthony over for his Anthony White over for his audition for Ferrari, as they were called at the time. So I, I had a band you figure it out. You got a drummer who's got a 280Z and, I, and the bass player's got a van. So I guess what I got to do is be Cartage Boy. <laughs> so I brought over all his drums and, and then I met Mark the second time then. And then, you know, clearly after that, I met him a couple times because I was, you know, hanging around rehearsal and doing whatever. And then got my audition and got in. So, man, I and I, I think everybody would agree. Mark Ferrari, man, he was a big deal in the 80s. You know what I mean? Keel, it was big time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, and I've told him this, too, that he came out of that band, and you know, as a guitar player and um, not the singer and not the, like, main writer, nothing, but your your basic, you know, one of five dude, and he got another record deal. That's, that's pretty impressive. You yeah. Know? And, and I, he put together a really good band. Yeah, and I always, and I mean, when, back as a young fan, you know, when, when Keel was out, I mean, I kind of, I always thought as Mark and Ron as kind of being the main guys, you know what I mean? So so I could see where Mark could could pull it off, you know? Yeah, yep. But I mean, but I, having then left Cold Sweat and joining Saigon Kick, and realizing how difficult that was, and then trying to get you know something going again, you're just like, 
you know, I had a whole different view on how Mark did it the second time around, as opposed to, you know, it was my first time. So everything was new to me and everything was great. It was fun and everything was not impossible to overcome. So, you know, he knew better. <laughs> One thing I didn't ask him about, but I'll ask you about, uh, was Oni Logan. Uh, he was originally your singer, correct? Yes, he was. And what happened with that whole situation? Oni got poached by George Lynch, which is uh, from Lynch Mob, which is you know now kind of a fun, famous story. And you know, people asked us what happened right in front of you know all of us. And um, he, uh, we played a gig at the Whiskey right after we'd finished doing a bunch of writing. And um, there was a thing called the No Bozo Jam, where you just kind of get up and do use communal gear and just go for it. And they were fun, and we used it to showcase some new material. So George had heard about this Oni. So he came by and um, basically started wooing him right, you know, right then and there, right in front of us. And uh, so, it, you know, Oni said no, but George didn't stop and just kept after him, kept after him, and Oni finally gave in. And the, the, literally the day we were signing our record deal, Oni, you know, left to go join Lynch Mob. So oh. we waited about six, seven months, found Roy Cathy, and got the record done. I think Mark alluded to, you know, there was a few setbacks where originally, you know, he was planning to come right out 88, 89 was something, but he had, he had a few setbacks and I'm sure that was a big one. Oh yeah. That knocked it back seven months at least, which, and, and in, in the music business, that's an eternity. Now, when you think um, back, I mean, like you said, this was your first big major label release and we kind of did talk about the timing of the album a little bit. So you figure 1990, you know, the hard rock thing's still going, but by 91, it's over. I mean, how did you feel? Right. Like, did you feel kind of devastated? Because here it is, you know, major label, Mark Ferrari, and then it's over. I mean, it's got to be devastating. It was weird. I mean, I remember Wendy Dio you know, telling us on the same day, by the way, I got good news and bad news. Good news, MTV just put your video into heavy rotation. Bad news is MCA dropped you. Oh, my God. And... And you're just thinking, how do these things go together? Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, you know, all of us have uh, moved out to L.A. to, you know, get fame and fortune, and all of a sudden it's over. And, I mean, I was certainly well aware of the fact that every, every style has a shelf life, and we were just about a year too late for ours. Um, however, my, my thought is, in hindsight, if we had gotten the record done, and out a year earlier, things like Nirvana and um, uh, Jane's Addiction and Soundgarden and all that stuff still would have come out and wiped the map with that with that style. It's just like the, just like the punks got rid of the original prog rock, and then you know new wave and synth rock got rid of the punks, and then Van Halen took care of that, and then, you know, <laughs> then it just went around and around. It, it, you have about a four year shelf life, and uh, we would have lasted about two if we'd been. You know, a year earlier, just because um, Rat and Dawkins and all that kind of started it in 84, 85. So by 89, if we had come out and done an eight, because we got signed end of 88. So that, that tells you how, how long that delay was. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I talked to a lot of different guys, um, you know, about this whole era of music, and most kind of thought like it was never going to end, you know? And, and I think as a, as a fan myself, I didn't think it was going to end. I didn't really see it coming. I just figured, oh, you know, Motley Crue's got a new album and a new tour and a new album. And, you know, you just thought this cycle was going to go forever. And then it's just like, you know, we hit that wall. So what are you going to do? Well, and, and like I said, each each genre then, well, they, first of all, you have the shelf life, but uh, I didn't say this yet. <laughs> it was uh, 
every genre has its icons that seem to get past the uh, the styles. So, like, for example, you just threw out Motley Crue. Great example. They tended to work right past it. Iron Maiden worked right past it. Van Halen worked right They had no problem. Just boom, right through. You know, Nirvana didn't affect them at all. Yeah, and you know, you know what one, actually, if we if we kick back to the decade before, the one that blows my mind, and, and I know Kiss had some downtime, you know, late 70s, early yeah, 80s. Kiss too. But when you think of Kiss being huge in the 70s, I mean, Kiss got pretty big again in the 80s, and, and that does not happen for a lot of people. So, I mean. No, they're playing arenas. Aerosmith, too. Yeah, Smith, yep. Yeah, so credit to these guys. I think what they were lucky because the next thing that came um, – that became big, they were kind of like the the forefathers of, you know what I mean? So they fit right in. It's unfortunate. Yeah. So, you know, when you think of like the Motley Crues and the Dawkins and all them, and then then Nirvana, it was really hard to shape yourself into that mold, you know? Right. Totally agree. So. And um, and I like Nirvana. I love, I love all that stuff. And, you know, and you know, I was a music fan. So, you know, I think only certain bands, um, stick to one thing, but I like a lot of stuff. So, like, Saigon Kick was in that change as well. Uh, Atlantic didn't really know what to do with it, so I just kind of stuck with the metal category, but Saigon Kick is not metal. It's got no. big riffs and big, you know, big harmonies and all that, but there were other bands that were doing that, so that's what the style became. Um, you know, so it's, it was, you know, like for me, Motorhead and Madonna live right next to each other in my record collection and always have. <laughs> So I, I like all kinds of music. Plus, going to L.A., I would sneak into that, you know, because you know, I'd have to put my hair in a ponytail now because you get your ass kicked. But, you know, some of the punk shows and some of the um, the James shows and all that because, you know, I didn't look like that alternative kind of crowd. Like, I remember being a body, when a body counts first gigs and just like, whoo, am I going to get out of this alive? You know, and I did. Yeah, I mean, I got to admit, I mean, I loved all the hair stuff, but I thought a lot of the things that were coming out were cool as well. I went to the first Lollapalooza, and I was just a teenager, and I mean, that was just a killer hodgepodge of music. Like you said, a body, no, I don't think body, that was Ice-T that was there. So it was Ice-T, Nine Inch Nails, Living Color, Susie and the Banshees, uh, Jane's Addiction. I mean, that was, that was, that was awesome. It really was. Yeah. I loved that uh, Living Color, uh, the first record, Vivid. Oh. I played that thing to death. Loved it. I think I've got your timeline right. So Cold Sweat ends. Is that when you start Cold Gin? That's when you get into Cold Gin? Cold Gin was kind of going on during that. I, as a matter of fact, uh, yesterday was Mark and Mark uh, Ferrari and James St. James' birthday. So they always had it on the same day. Oh, nice. Know, for, for, and uh, so they always used to have parties as well. So we would get up and play Kiss songs at their party. And it just got out of control. And that was during Cold Sweat. So we started doing gigs like we we're going to do on this boat. We, that's why we said on mass. People were like, are you going to wear the makeup? I'm like, what, are you kidding me? No. <laughs> um, we're just going to play like we did when we started it. We wear, we'd wear Kiss t-shirts and just play um, and just have a blast. So that's what we're doing with this. But cold, as Cold Sweat was dying off and then died, I did Cold Gin literally all the way up to like a week before I joined Second Kick just because we could. And it was, it was just completely out of control as far as attendance and attention. We were the top draw in L.A., which says something. Because that's at a time when you had all these bands trying to get signed, and we were number one. It was like, ugh. That, it kind of said something about what was going on at the time. Like, you know, why aren't you guys looking at these? Why isn't there a band that is original that is just killing right now? And uh, 
and drawing everyone's attention as opposed to us having a blast dressing up like kids. <laughs> so maybe that's what they want. They want to have fun. I don't know, but it was it was kind of weird. So refresh everybody's memory out there of who was in Cold Gin. That version of Cold Gin was Jamie St. James on drums, Anthony White on guitar and vocals, you had me on bass, and then you had Tommy Thayer on guitar. So that's just crazy. So now, in hindsight, now today, did you ever think the guy that was playing Ace in your tribute band would ever be in Kiss? Oh, good God, no! <laughs> you know, we were amazed. We were we were amazed when they walked in the door, you know, and and helped us with our makeup and our costumes that one night, you know. And, and they they kept coming to gigs, and it was just, you know, if you had told me this when I bought that record, I would have told you you were out of your mind, you know. Think about it. You pick up this record, you go to the cashier, and the cashier says to you, "By the way, in five years, you're going to be playing a gig in L.A., and you're going to be sitting next to Gene Simmons, and you're going to be dressed as him, and he's not going to be." in makeup at all, and you're going to be sitting there laughing and making jokes about what just happened. I would have said, you've been in the automotive part of the store clearly huffing paint because you're <laughs> out of your mind. So, yeah, no idea. And I'm sure Tommy wouldn't either. I mean, you know, they, they love Tommy and Jamie. That's why they let us do what we did. Um, and then from there, they, they, we, we were just told, look, if you get too big, we'll tight. And we got too big. So after it ended, you know, they saw how Tommy was incredibly organized, and he just... He just knows how to deliver. So they, they hired him to do all the conventions, and he killed it. So it was not much of a surprise that after a while, they started looking to him to kind of shape and bend and move their quality control in the way it had to go for that reunion because fans of specifically that band just know everything. They're like detectives. So Tommy was a fan like that and knew how to put that stuff together, and they were, he was invaluable to them. So they just like decided, well, you kind of play guitar well, too, and you can sing and you look the part put the makeup on you and go. And, you know, he's been there, what, 12, 15 years? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. But if you told us at the time, you'd be like, yeah, right, whatever. You know, and people can say whatever they want about, about the whole scenario, but let's face it, if, if you were in that situation, man, and you love Kiss, and somebody said, do you want to be in Kiss? You'd be like, yeah, I want to be in Kiss. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. But, yeah, anyone who's criticizing Bison uh, for being in Kiss, you know, would step on their mother's head to be in his place. Yeah. You know, and and he's and again, I watch him, and he just kills it. Everything I see, he's and I knew this anyway. But watching him do it at that scale is just fantastic. It makes me so happy. And and I've told him that I was like, dude, I am so happy for you. I think this is the best thing in the world. Yeah, and and you know, when you think of even career wise, uh, actually, I talked with um. Uh, talk with uh, Greg from Badlands last night, and Eric Singer came up. You know, it, it was one of those things. Like, would you ever believe that this would be Eric Singer? You know, the guy you played with, he'd be in Kiss, and 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 Greg was happy for him. He's like, that's that's a killer gig. It's a stable gig. God bless him. You know. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Greg is Greg is one of my oldest friends in the biz. So when you think about. Well, this will be our last thing on Kiss, and then we'll move on. But when when you performed and, and imitated um, Gene, did they give you a real appreciation for what kind of a performer he is? Because you think he's got these bass lines. They're walking all over the place, right? He's singing. Right. He's jumping. He's moving his arms. I mean, this guy, I mean, Gene Simmons is an underrated dude, in my opinion. Totally agree. Imagine this. He's, he's 70 years old and don't, getting up there and doing that three, four times a week. Now, imagine your grandpa getting up and doing that. <laughs> you know, no. it's crazy. 
or your dad or, you know, anyone around you who's 70, 70, and they're not done yet. But yeah, when we were doing that, I got a whole new respect for what that took because they did it for two, three years before they ever started really making some headway um, and making it worth it and putting that stuff on and taking it off every night. And those, you, you, you get up there and you do that gig, you're in that, you're in that material, you're sweating your butt off. Like you said, you're jumping around. You know, I got the blood, in the, which is eggs. It's all over me. It's in my face. It's in my clothing. It's in my hair. You know, you get too close to the candelabra, you burn your hair. Um, you know, you uh, what else? You can't wipe your face. So you know, if you're sweating it and stuff runs into your eye, too bad. You know, you got a show must go on. You know, so it's it, it's tough. It's it's really tough. And like I said, they did it for a long time and stuck with it. I remember saying, uh, we were backstage putting the, putting the stuff on one night, and he goes, God, I wish we thought of this, you know? Um, but, but my point was, you know, I, we only did it now and then. We didn't do it for like a year, you know? we Our longest run, we did like a week's worth of shows in Texas. And I remember coming back, and, you know, we were in our 20s, and I'm just thinking to myself, that was brutal. And they did it for from 74 to really about 76 when they really started hitting it. Yep. That's a lot of shows, man. Yeah, and then once the machine got going, I mean, they, they were touring constantly throughout the, yep. the mid to late 70s. It, yep, and photo shoots. That's the other thing, you know, when you do stuff for a photo shoot, you don't just show up like you do in a rock band and, you're, and, you're, and you change your clothes, whatever. No, you have to show up, do the makeup, It is, and for a photo shoot, it has to be perfect. There was no Photoshop then, so you're not fixing anything. So all your lines have to be perfect. All your borders, you know, between the black and the white have to be perfect. Your spacing's perfect. If you get anything wrong, you're wiping it all off and doing it again. So how did you end up in Saigon Kick? I ended up in Saigon Kick uh, thanks to a friend of mine who was working at Mercury at the time. We got a call on a Monday. And at this point, Saigon Kick and Skid Row were my two favorite bands. Uh, I had friends in Atlantic who gave me an advanced copy of The Lizard, so I've already been listening to it for two or three months. And, um, I mean, I loved them because they're the heavy Beatles to me. And, uh, and you know, they did some weird stuff like a kazoo solo. I was like, wow, that's like ELO, another one of my favorite bands. And loved the harmonies and um, just everything was great um, to me. So... This friend of mine calls me up, uh, I think he was a VP at the time, and he says, hey, man, they fired the bass player over the, over the weekend. Send your package to this guy now. So um, now I'm in L.A., so I'm already behind, you know, because they're in Florida. So I zip down to UPS, throw my stuff in a sack, send it over. Then I get a call the next day um, from their management. Hey, we got it, you know, blah, blah, blah. Thank you very much. Um, Jason's going to be calling you tonight. Oh, okay, cool. So he calls me, we talk, and we have a lot of common ground. He says, cool, well, come on out. So I came out. Um, we played everything, because I was told they play everything off both records, and I knew all both records. So I was the second guy in. The first guy, I think, was a local friend of theirs. Um, so it went, everything went well, you know, like you would hope it, if you're doing that audition. Like you want the gig, and you really hope it goes well. Everything went perfectly. We got along. It's, it sounded good. We had a vibe together as a band, musically. And um, But, they, you know, at the end of it, they're like, well, 
you're the second guy in, no offense, but we got to see some other people. But if it was up to us, we'd take you right now. I said, believe me, you know, I'm from L.A. I know how this goes. Take your time. If you, you know, if it's right, it's right. So um, get on the plane and come home. And uh, I say hi to my now wife, you know, and, okay, I'm jumping around to Blockbuster. It tells me how long ago this was. Right, grab a movie. And I come back and she says, uh, oh, Jason Bieler called while you're out. And I was like, oh. Because <laughs> I'm thinking to myself, they found somebody, you know. Oh, well, I lost it, you know. You know, because bands always tend to hire who they know. They, they go, they're very insular, you know. So they hire friends. Um, and I'm, I was by far an outsider, and they were legends in local music, so why wouldn't they pick someone they knew? So, so I called Jason back. I said, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, hey, uh, you know, we are just thinking about it, and the gig's yours if you want it. I said, really? He goes, yeah. I said, you guys didn't have anybody else? And I only saw a couple more people, but it's yours if you want it. I was like, uh, when do you want me out there? He said, can you be here in a couple of days? We got gigs like next week. I was like, wow. <laughs> yeah, sure. So I packed my stuff and off I went. So you're catching this band uh, at the right time because at, uh, right about this time, they're breaking through with Love is on the Way, right? Yeah, but when we were, um, you know, I was joining it, that song was like just being released to radio. So I'd love to say that, you know, I had this amazing business acumen where I predicted it was going to be a hit single and I joined it. <laughs> Perfect timing, you know. But no, I joined because I loved the band. And, and then it was fun to watch it build because we went from doing like, eh, you know, one radio station, you know, coming in and singing um, eh, once every two, three, you know, gigs, two, three cities to by the time it started hitting when we were reaching Boston and New York, we were going to four or five radio stations a day doing the same damn song <laughs> so it was it was crazy to watch that watch the machine rise as it gains power and uh, popularity it was um, and then watch how you watch a record company get behind it and radio get behind it like once it starts getting momentum everyone wants to be a piece of it you know they want to be part of the success and it's like pushing a car out of a ditch the more people you get the faster it goes it's like holy mackerel look at this so it was really cool yeah, and they were, you know, like you said, and, and I, I was into them right when they came out too because, you know, as a teenager, you, you, you know, you're starting to kind of get weary maybe of, of some of the hair stuff. And here's these guys, and they're just totally different. You know what I mean? They're, they're putting in all kinds of different elements to their music. You can hear the Beatles. You can hear Jane's Addiction. You can hear, you know, hard rock and metal. It's all kind of morphing together in this band. And, uh, I mean, it was amazing. Yeah. Well, that was the cool. That was. <laughs> I remember on the way out to the uh, the warehouse, my very first time um, uh, for rehearsal. Matt and I are hanging out because I'd already hung out with Jason and uh, um, and Phil early in the day. Matt showed up, so Matt and I, you know, kind of bond with with to each other on the way out to rehearsal. So um, we have, uh, you know, the basic. Hey, how you doing? And what are your influences? Blah blah blah. Back and forth, and uh, Matt. Matt uh, was asking me about, you know, he'd heard about Oni, actually, which was kind of funny. Um, he's like, so what happened with Oni? I'm like, how do you know that? He's like, oh, so he's from down here. I said, really? <laughs> Small I'm world, right? myself, what's the chances of that? I'm going to get involved with two singers from the same neighborhood, you know? So, um, so, so Matt said, well, we do everything off of both records except Chanel. 
I was like, oh man, that's like one of my favorite talents, but oh well, you know. Um, but I love the fact that Chanel was on the same record as my dog. It's a pretty crazy spectrum from going to one side to the other. Oh, you know, yeah. That's big. Now you're in the video for All I Want, right? Yes. When I was joining the band, they were editing Love is on the Way. Right. That video. And so... Do you feel like the success of Love is on the Way was kind of like a blessing and a curse for this band, or what do you think? Uh, it's a good question, because when we went out with Extreme, you know, you got two bands that was very similar. I mean, so much of their success was based on more than words, you know? And and you'd have some people who'd come out, and I, I kept a diary of all these things, where they obviously expected us to do an hour and a half of songs like Love is on the Way, but we'd you know, come out hit him in the face and then do love is the way near the end and they'd all sing along and then, you know, then be confusion again. Um, but yeah, I think there were some ways where, um, you know, they, the record company is like a safe hit. So we have radio stations where, um, they'd say, well, you released a ballad and that's a safe bet. And we'd say, well, you already have hostile youth here as a single, but you didn't play that clearly. And they'd go, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and if we saw other singles like What You Say or um, Come Take Me Now or Freedom or, you know, well, you guys had the choice to play the other stuff, but you chose this one. So that's not our fault. Yeah, I think I put a video out on Twitter uh, a couple weeks back and it was Hostile Youth and everybody would comment, can you imagine all these, uh, you know, girls or whoever, whoever bought this this album because the love is on the way and then they get kicked in the face with Hostile Youth. So, yeah, it must have been a shocker. Oh, yeah, because that one's first. So, at what point is Matt Kramer out and what happened with that whole situation? That was in Sweden. Um, and uh, Matt just decided what was going on wasn't for him and he just didn't want to do it anymore. Now, I think that was a lot of history that I wasn't privy to. Um meaning just the band's history well before I got there. You know, they formed, I think, in 88 or 89. So you had three, four years before I even walked in the room, um, which is always when you're the new guy, you're kind of confused by a fight to break up. Right. Uh, what, what happened here? I, you know, we were having a nice time. Um, so he just, he didn't want to, uh, I guess he just didn't want to do it. So he, he bailed out and we're like, okay, well, we got to finish. And we did. Um, and then he put together Coma, and I know they 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 were uh, they worked on getting a deal. And I don't know if they were offered a deal or not, but um, you know that was great band. You know the tunes are really cool. So he, uh, I, I think it literally came down to I don't want to do it. So you know, and what I learned from Oni was if someone doesn't want to do it, they don't want to be there. Don't try and force them. You know, let them let them go if they want to go, and if they want to come back, let them come back. And, he uh, he left and didn't <laughs> didn't come back. Didn't come back. Um, is, well, for a long time he didn't come back. Then he did come back. Is uh, is Jason tough to work with, or because he seems like he's got a very distinct vision with his music? Yeah, he can be a real pain in the ass, but he can <laughs> he, he can also be you know really easy. Um, so it's like you said. I think it's the application of the vision. Uh, there were times when he and I would seriously slam heads over a baseline. Um, but it was usually something where if he wrote the song, he tends to write songs in entire, like, uh, like if you looked at a picture on a wall, every element is already there. So, you know, Northern European landscape, 
you have people ice skating, you have the, the, the frozen lake, you have the sky, you have the trees, you have people on the side of the lake. Um, he throws all that in all, all at once. So the drum part goes a certain way in his head, the vocals, the guitar parts, the bass, everything. So if he wrote it that way and demoed it that way, he wanted to hear it the way it was demoed. Well, that might not be how I heard it. So we, we absolutely slam into each other. Then, then a good example of that is Russian Girl. He just, I wasn't playing it the way he heard it. So I was playing it my way and I played it in the same notes he did, but it just, it didn't feel like he heard it on, on the demo. So he played it on the record. <laughs> but then he and I wrote, um, I mean, we demoed it. He had come up with, he had a basic idea. Um, we wrote Victoria or recorded Victoria together. Um, and I came up with the piano part and the bass line. And he said, that's, that's like my favorite bass line of yours because he just, he let me do it. And, uh, he didn't have a preconceived notion of what it was. So once I figured that out, I tried to get to the bass line as fast as I could. So I wasn't arguing about, um, you know, what do you do here? What do you do there? What do you want? I, you know, there's another, there's a song on, um, Devil in the Details called Going On that I wrote. And, uh, he's like, what do you want to do? And I was like, well, I want you to play like you play. Well, but I want to know the part. You make up the part. You know, I trust you to do what you do. So, um, so it was, uh, he was very, he, he can be very, um, focused on what he wants, whereas I tend to be more, you know, um, collaborative. You know, if, if I want him to play a solo, like I, I had this pro project called the Sissies, which was all like 70s pop, but really revved up. And uh, he said, what do you want me to play? And I said, soulful shred, just do what you want, just go. He's like, that, really, just anything? I said, yeah. You know, I'm asking you to play it because how you play is what I want to hear. So just go, just do it. And he did, killed it. Great. Uh, on and on has a really cool bass line in it. Thank you. That's Jason. I'm on guitar on that one. Are you? Okay, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. That was a great example. If we picked stuff up in the in the studio, he's like, he picked the bass up and started going, dig -a -dig -a -dig -a, and I just added my little reggae police kind of thing. Yeah, and we and then we get we kept it. Yeah. So let's go to water because I mean. I think this is this is my favorite Saigon kick album. I, I can't say it's the best, but I think it's my favorite. Um, it's just, uh, and you know, it's one of those things where I was a little uh, skeptical because of the vocal change. I'm like, oh, is this going to be right? Is this going to be okay? And um, honestly, it's it's not that it's not that different, really. I mean, it's different, but it, it feels familiar. I think because Jason probably wrote all those songs on the other albums as well, or a lot of them. So. It yeah. seemed familiar. It wasn't like it was a total uh, change of direction. So it feels like we're still, you know, you still kind of have those same vocal melodies and you've got all these, I feel like that's the most diverse album, like song by song. <laughs> it really is. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, well, and with that one for me, that's where I kind of learned that how much of that sound was, um, I mean, he and Matt's voice uh, voices blend really well. Um, naturally, uh, but I mean, he would always write that lower part and just, you know, or Matt would. So they, that was almost kind of ingrained. They knew how to do it, regardless of who was singing it. So um, there's a, on Devil, there's a song called All Around where I kind of ha handled what would be, let's say, Matt's part. I'm just the lower part. And it still sounds like Saigon Kick with me singing, and Matt and I don't sound alike. 
but it's kind of, you know, Jason and I worked together and made it sound right. So on water, very similar the same way. Just, you know, Jason knew what he wanted up below it, and then you always heard him on top anyway. So half of it was gone, you know, but half of it was still there. I think Water's a good example of one of the one one of the albums where like even though Saigon Kick's not necessarily an 80s band, but they kind of get grouped into that category sometimes. Um, I feel like this is where the 80s bands could have went. And, and I, there's a, quite a few albums out there that, you know, there, there's bands where, let's just say, Warrant tried grunge, I think, around 95 or something. They did. Like, you know what I'm saying? Doggy Dog. They yeah, did, yes. Yeah, so, there's, so there's, some, there's some definite departures that didn't make sense. But then there's, like, where, where I feel like some of the bands could have experimented more and maybe pulled it off. But I think Water is one of those ones where people could have taken notice and, and tried something similar. Just be creative. Be yourself. Don't really follow a trend. Because when you go song by right. song, I mean, you've got One Step Closer, which is pretty heavy, and it sounds, you know, like your typical Saigon kick. But then you get into, right. like, uh, Sentimental Girl, and it's got all those, you know, that crazy guitar, you know, like old school music, old, old style. And it's just, I don't know. I just love yeah. that album, man. I love it. Yeah, and the trumpet solo, too. The trumpet, yeah, yeah. Kind of like the way Beatles and Queen would do those old-time, you know, 20 songs or four. I don't know what the exact era is. Oh, uh, totally agree. Yeah, I, mean, I love Queen that stuff. was such a huge influence on Saigon Kick. Huge influence on Saigon Kick. So what happened uh, with Atlantic? They just... Got tired of things, or what happened? I think with Atlantic, it was uh, Michael Douglas, who was uh, president of Third Stone. I think he his contract was up with Third Stone, and it was just one of those things where when when that went, Atlantic just didn't pick up the option. So, Which was odd, because Doug Morris, who was president of Atlantic at the time, said, you have three hits on this record. And that was on and on. Um... I love you, and I forget what the third one was. Um, and uh, they it didn't describe in the U.S. right because they dropped the ball. They just didn't want to do it. But in Indonesia, all of those were top ten with "I Love You" being number one. Wow, that's so, amazing! You know, and within Indonesia, we we're like, you know, wow, how big is the country? You know, are we essentially like this is Spinal Tap? You know. And, you know, we find out it's this country of 200, at the time, 250 million people. We're like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's like having a gold record in the United States, yeah. easily. The platinum. It's huge. And so, then, Doug called all the, all the singles. So, Atlantic, if they wanted to, and again, this is the opposite of what I saw with Love is on the Way. They just had no interest in, in working with it, just let it die. But part of that death was Michael Michael Jackson. Michael Douglas um, just pulling out and, you know, he had, he had, you know, important things to do, like movies and stuff like that. So you couldn't really say, like, hey, man, you know, what are you doing? You're just letting us hang here. Like, you know, you know he's, he's Michael Douglas. Had another job. So you guys do Devil in the Details. That album seems a little more organic than Water. You, you agree? Or? I would. Well, a lot of Water was written in the studio. Like, the way was written on the spot, um, but with with uh, Devil in Details, I remember sitting down with Jason, going, "You guys, the first record was played live in clubs for a year, probably, right?" And he's like, "Yeah." I said, "Okay, all my favorite records, the band played them. They tried out the songs, they tested in front of an audience, an audience, whatever. So we picked about four or five songs, wrote them, and then then went out on the road and played them in front of crowds." 
you know, to get a reaction. And it turns out, you know, okay, you tweak this, that verse goes too long, that intro should be double, this guitar part really doesn't work. And so we were able to field test it, which was a huge difference uh, than Water. Water was literally, we got the idea in the studio and we did it. We had no material. When we used to do Water, we had nothing. So everything was done there. Devil was the complete opposite. You know, there were some songs that were not, um, like, let's say two were only demoed and thrown it, thrown together in the studio, but like All Around was live every night. So Painfully was live every night. Um, Russian Girl was live every night. Uh, what was another one? Um, there's another, oh, Killing Ground. Killing Ground. Coming Down, Killing Ground, whatever, whatever the title. <laughs> it's had two titles. Those were done every night. So by the time we got to the studio, they were rock solid. Uh, and that was the difference, I think. That's why that album sounds more, um, to me, it sounds more focused than um, Water does. Yeah. I think I just like some of those weird type albums, though. You know what I mean? Like like I said, I, I like Queen. I like how Queen goes from all these different directions on one album. So that was what I was getting oh, from yeah. Water. And, and Beatles do it, too. You know what I mean? You, something like the White Album, I mean, it, it's all over the map. And I guess that's how my brain operates. <laughs> Yeah, um, me too. I mean, I, that's my favorite Beatles album is Revolver. And it's you know, you've got crazy uh, shifts in what they're what they're doing and how they're presenting it, and I love it. Queen, like you said, same way. Um, you know, on um, you have Seaside Rendezvous and Prophet Song on the same record on yeah. the opera. I mean, that's that's unbelievable as far as the palette goes. It's huge. So when was the band officially done? I mean, the band was officially done when we were working on what became Bastards. Um, and Matt came back for two shows at the Button South and a radio fest called Zeta Fest uh, in Fort Lauderdale. And it just didn't go well, um, just for, you know, whatever reasons. And uh, my daughter was just about a year old, a little less than a year old. And... Um, I, I, I just kind of had it, um, just the conflict and uh, the um, kind of swimming around in the direction pool, you know, without heading towards any any sort of side of the pool or the you know the uh, the diving board or a ladder or something, just kind of wandering around. Um, and uh, I, that, so I I left at that point for sure. I walked out. Um, Phil had already left and gone to. Prunella scale. So Ricky Sanders was playing drums with us and Rick was also in the process of doing something else. Matt went back to California. So it just went, the whole thing just fell apart right there. That's, and that you're talking the summer of 97, late summer of 97. And then that was it. You know, as far as I thought, we've seen the last second kick. I always say, never say never. You never know what's going to happen. And I was oddly proved right. But, um, it was, uh, I mean, you know, I was sad to see it go for sure. You know, it's just such a great band. So you guys obviously have done some some shows in in, in recent times with uh you know with Matt and and uh, with all you guys. Now, do you plan on? You think there's ever going to be another Saigon Kick album? Or I don't know. I mean, I think uh, if, if doing the the shows we did proved anything, and also you know some of the bands I love like Soundgarden. You know, they did a new record, and no one cares. Right. <laughs> Everyone thinks they want a new record until they get the new record. They go, you know, in our case, they'd say, you know, why aren't you playing Hostile Youth again? You know, <laughs> um, so 
there is a, I think it's more to turn into a nostalgic circuit where they only want to hear the songs that they knew coming up and a new song would be kind of cool, but it would fall right off the radar. That's just, you know, what I've watched and what I've seen. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm right, but um, I think there's, people always ask for new material, but I, I don't think that they uh, dig it just because they want the old material. They want, they want to remember how they felt at the time and, and, uh, and relive it as opposed to a new tune, which may be better uh, or not. I don't know. Um, we, we certainly fart around a couple things um, and, and we're you know, trying to get them out and going, but just didn't happen. Uh, and then there's a question into the cost. You, know, you don't have um, a record company footing the bill. So that's that's a big part of it. You know, that's the uh, records are not cheap to make. I think a lot of the problem too is, um, you know, fans have to put a little bit of work into it. When you think back to when you bought would buy an album, so you paid hard earned cash to buy a CD, you know, for seventeen dollars or ten dollar tape, whatever you bought you were invested immediately, right? You were invested financially. So what yep. you would do is you would play that album quite a bit because you wanted to like it. And sometimes yep. an album is going to grab you immediately and sometimes it's going to take multiple listens. In a society where you stream, you're going to listen to it once. Oh, that doesn't connect with me. I'm on to the next thing. And that's the way, yep. that's the product of our world today. So th that's that's the big problem with new music. I can say... I've I've been in that position. <laughs> I've done that myself, and I feel like I'm getting better to, of actually listening and giving things a chance and listening to it over and over again. Especially when you prepare for an interview, I like to see what the artist is doing today. So I'll go back and I'll yeah. listen to somebody's you know last album, and you know what? It, there's a lot of great stuff out there. So I just recommend people give things a you know give piece a chance, give music a chance, listen to it. There a few, you go. Live it. You know, don't just discredit it after one listen. You can't. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a good point because I, I, I know when I buy the record and then I throw it on and listen to it, I put it in the car because I still buy CDs because they sound better. They just, they do. Um, I don't get the whole vinyl fetish thing. It's, you know, it, there's a reason they abandoned that technology. So, you know, I, fantastic. Everyone now wants, all oh, vinyl's better, vinyl's better. Well, maybe if you, you know, the difference is now that all the gear is not made to produce the sound that vinyl made in the seventies, you know, had a type. But um, like, for example, I bought uh last couple of records I bought on CD that I just, you know, you have to listen to them and let them go and not stream them or skip ahead or whatever. All the rival sun stuff who I love. Um, Power Wolf, uh, Rammstein. Um, let me see. And there was one other that I just totally dug and grabbed it. And the fact that you, like you said, you invest your time into that 40, 45 minutes, and you listen to it uh, as a unit, as it's supposed to be presented. And it makes a huge difference in your dedication to um, that band and that record and that work. Totally agree with you. So beyond Saigon Kick and Cold Sweat and all these things, tell the people like some of the things you do uh, with music outside of those projects. Um, I've got an instrumental surf band called Big Mick and the Curl. Um, which is kind of my super secret, not super secret, but super passion. I love it. Um, and it's all like, like you would imagine. It's, you know, just twang guitars and reverb and a lot of drum solos and it's just fun. 
so I do that, but I also do production music, as it's called, so stuff on TV and film and ads and that sort of thing. So if you've been on an airplane, been in Costco, Best Buy, Walmart, um, or I'm trying to think what's another uh, thing that I've seen or heard, heard my stuff on, um, but definitely TV, all over TV. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's still on, but the show Wahlburgers, um, that I had the theme for that show. Um you know, trailers and movie theaters, you know, you're sitting there watching whatever, and you, all of a sudden you go, huh, I recognize that riff. And, oh, that's me. Um, what else is I like? HGTV, my wife watches a ton of it. And I'll be sitting there in the kitchen, you know, and I'll hear a song that just got paid. A couple, of, you know, a couple of little bits later, there'll be another tune that goes, the commercial just got paid there. Or, um, well, there's a, there's a, been a couple of car commercials where I'll be watching a Dodger game, and I go, why do I know that riff? Oh, that's that's me. That's why, you know. So that's kind of, that's kind of what has been taking up most of my time um, since I'm not you know in a touring band. But over the last two months, it's been <laughs> trying to relearn the entire Cold Sweat catalog, which is one record. But you know, I haven't played that stuff in forever. So uh, I've spent a lot of time getting that to be second nature again, and we all are. So uh, I'm curious to see how it turns out in about a week. Well, that's awesome, Chris. Well, hey, man, thanks for the conversation. I wish you a lot of luck at the gigs uh, on the cruise, and uh, thanks a lot for your time. Thank you, sir. Absolutely, anytime. That was a great conversation with Chris. I hope you all enjoyed it. So let me tell you what we have coming up over the next week. We've got, on Thursday, Kevin Steele from Rocks Gang. He's a riot. You don't want to miss that one. And then next Sunday's Chips Enough. The best way to catch all these interviews is to subscribe, tell your friends, do what you gotta do, man. Support the 80s glam metal cast. Rock on! God! 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 God!